100 Moments That Rocked Computer Science with Professor Sue Black, OBE. Coming up, we'll hear all about an incredible moment from the history of computer science. That ignited a whole field that we now know as quantum computing. The challenges that led to its discovery. He was absolutely mad at what he did. And the impact it had on our world and maybe our future. And now we're at a stage where we might actually be able to cure them. All this and more as we explore another moment that rocked computer science. science. Moment number seven. Tom Ilube, CBE, on the birth of quantum computing. Hi, I'm Sue Black. I'm Professor of Computer Science and Technology Evangelist at Durham University. I'm Carl Sahile, and I'm a first-year computer science student at Durham University. And I'm Quentin O'Brien, and I'm a second year. One of the reasons I love computer science is for the sense that something you're doing can help to shape the future. That's definitely one of the messages I want to get across in this podcast, that as a computer scientist, you're more or less an architect of the future. Today's subject exemplifies this perfectly. Cal, Quentin, so lovely to see you both. So excited to be here. Yeah, very happy. So my job on this podcast is to take the moment we're discussing and imagine where it might take us in the future. And I'm here to help us think a little bit about what our lives would be like if this moment never happened. And I get to find out about the moment from our incredible guest. This episode, it's the amazing entrepreneur and philanthropist Tommy Lube talking to us about the birth of quantum computing and specifically the moment that galvanised people into thinking that it might actually be possible to build a quantum computer. I couldn't be more excited. He's clever, thoughtful and such an inspiration and I think you're really going to enjoy our chat. Cal, do you know much about quantum computing? I'm very excited about today's guest because I've been following quantum computing for a very long time. I I did my EPQ on it, which is basically where you write a 5,000 word essay on a research topic of your choice. It would surprise no one to learn that I did mine on Alan Turing and wrote (laughs) 10,000 words. (laughs) Um, I've read countless books on it. I have a shelf at home. Um, on my bookshelf that's dedicated to quantum mechanics and quantum computing. Um, Amazing. Yes, yeah, so I'm very much excited about this. Um, and yeah, I can't wait to hear what Tom Aluve has to tell us. Great. How about you, Quentin? Well, I'm not quite as dedicated as Cal, um, but I am really interested <laughs> in cybersecurity. And obviously there is quite a lot of overlap between um, quantum and cybersecurity at the minute, both how, you know, how cybersecurity is sort of going to work and cryptography is going to work post quantum computing and also how much it's going to sort of ruin in terms of current cryptography at the minute, um, <laughs> which, you know, is very exciting to look forward to. And I'm very interested in it. Wonderful. Well, we'll hear from you both again at the end of the show. Definitely. Don't forget, you can email us with any questions about today's episode or computer science at Durham University using 100moments at durham.ac.uk. Or you can find us on Twitter, send us a nice tweet at 100momentscs. Yeah, make sure it's a nice one. Right? <laughs> Not a nasty one. I can't do with any hate. <laughs> Please be nice. Our guest this episode is Tom Alube, 
Tom is a tech entrepreneur and philanthropist with a track record of launching exciting tech startups, including the pioneering online bank Egg and his current venture, Crossword Cybersecurity. And if you're into sports, you might know Tom as the chair of the Rugby Football Union. Tom is a physicist at heart, having studied physics at university, but he calls himself a startup guy and says his specialities are turning something vague into something real and exciting, which times perfectly with the moments he's here to talk about. Hi, Tom. Great to see you and welcome to the show. Thank you very much and good to see you. Do you want to tell us what is your moment that rocked computer science and the world? My moment that rocked computer science and the world is a keynote speech given by the physicist Richard Feynman in 1981, which was called Simulating Physics with Computers. And essentially, he was asking the question, can physics be simulated by a universal computer? Uh, and arrived at the answer that it could not be simulated by a classical computer. There needed to be another type of computer called a quantum computer in order to simulate the real quantum world that we actually live in. And that moment, that keynote at that conference in 1981, organised by MIT and IBM, in some sense sort of pulled together a lot of thinking and strands around this area and just galvanise the field. And um, even though you can't sort of directly trace everything back to that moment, there was a sort of galvanising effect of a physicist of Richard Feynman's stature, a Nobel Prize winner, saying this is really new, really important, and this is the only way to simulate the real world that ignited a whole field that we now know as quantum computing. Thank you. So that's quite some time ago now, um, isn't it? And um, I remember actually reading Feynman's Five Easy Pieces, isn't it? Um, I think when I was at uni um, and getting very excited uh, about physics. But I can't say that I 100% understand how a, a quantum computer works. So could you give us an explanation that, that we can all understand of how a quantum computer works? Or is that putting you on the spot too much? <laughs> well, I can, <laughs> I can have a go. I mean, a quantum computer is a different type of computer to a classical computer. So in simple terms, um, and just to sort of give the context, a quantum computer is a computer that uses quantum mechanics, the behavior of very small particles and their weird quantum behavior in order to do its processing. And the result of that is that for certain particular classes of problems, a quantum computer will solve those problems massively quicker than a classical computer, of the order of a quantum computer taking a few seconds or a few tens of seconds versus a classical computer, as we know today, taking thousands of years. Wow. So for particular problems, the difference is huge. Not for everything. That's an important thing. This isn't a situation where these quantum computers will be used for word processing and suddenly you'll be able to write your essays in a fraction of a second. <laughs> Unfortunately, Wouldn't it, that won't... Be great? <laughs> <laughs> it won't work. It won't work like that. But for, for particular classes of problems, um, the, the speed up uh, is, uh, is absolutely uh, amazing. And 
the reason for that, I don't know how, how detailed you want me to get about uh, what a quantum computer, <laughs> shall I have a go at trying to explain what a, what a quantum computer actually does that's different to a classical computer? That okay. would be wonderful if, if you're up for it, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll have a go and then, uh, uh, and then people will no doubt correct me if I'm, uh, if I'm wrong. The Nothing like putting our guests on the spot. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> so a, a normal classical computer that we know and love today does its processing using bits, binary digits, uh, ones and zeros. A quantum computer uh, does its processing using quantum bits, which is shortened to qubits. And qubits can be one and zero. They can also be in this rather odd quantum state that's called superposition, quantum superposition. Now, some people in sort of popular literature and so forth will say, ah, oh, that means that it's uh, in, in the state of being a one and zero at the same time. Actually, that's not really what's going on there. What's really going on is that these qubits can be in a state where they are best described as being a, a wave, a probability of being in one and zero, rather than actually being in one and zero at the same time. So you, you describe the qubit as a wave, and waves have amplitudes. Um, uh, you know, a wave on a beach, it goes up and down and so forth. And that's where the interesting thing comes in, because then you can manipulate these waves and you can apply other amplitudes to these waves uh, and so that the answer that you're looking for amongst your qubits its amplitude increases because you reinforce it, and the answer that you're not interested in, its amplitude decreases. And when you observe a qubit, it then stops being in this superposition state of either being potentially one or potentially zero, and it actually becomes a one or a zero. So the act of observing it causes your qubit or your qubits to essentially collapse into an answer. And what you want to make sure as you're processing is that the answer that's most likely to come out is the answer that you want. And the answers that you're not interested in, those amplitudes have reduced to zero, essentially, uh, and they disappear. So, the the process of doing this, so what you're essentially doing with your qubits is you're putting them into this weird superposition state so that they can have a probability of being ones and zeros, but they're not actually, they're just described by these amplitudes. You're then doing some processing on them, which basically means you're applying a set of quantum gates onto these qubits, and you're essentially applying your, your waves, your algorithms are... are hitting these qubits as a series of waves that reinforce the answer, the likelihood of the answer that you want and reduce the likelihood of the answer that you don't want. And then you observe it. And when you observe it, the answer that you want 
should miraculously appear and with a certain high degree of probability uh, and that should then be the answer that you're looking for so underneath the covers a bit that's sort of what's going on there i like, I like the fact that there was a bit of a miracle at the end there. <laughs> it <laughs> and miraculously a miracle appears <laughs> <laughs> You're reminding me of, of um, the stuff that I read around physics a long time ago. So I, I guess probably by Richard Feynman. And what, so there was the experiment, wasn't there? Was it photons that are fired towards a screen and then yes, you couldn't tell if yes. they were going to be a wave or a particle? So it sounds very, very close to that. Yes, the experiment was called the double slit uh, experiment where you are you are firing photons at this uh, at these these double slits and then you're you're measuring what's happening on on the other side and if these photons were particles then you should just see a sort of scatter of uh, of measurements on the screen on the other side if the photons were waves, then as they went through the two slits, they would then interfere with each other and you would you should see a wave-like pattern where some bits were darker and some bits were lighter because the waves would sometimes cancel each other out and would sometimes reinforce each other. So that was interesting. You, you could then do this experiment and say, right, now we'll find out whether these things are particles or whether they're waves. Uh, and it turned out that they seemed to be both. They seemed to be both particles and waves, depending on what you were looking for and depending on what sort of behavior uh, you were looking for. Uh, and that's where it became really sort of confusing. And people have been talking a lot about, well, what does that actually mean and what's actually going on uh, underneath the covers? I think what was interesting about the quantum computing field uh, and uh, people like Feynman and others, um, Paul Benioff, David Dusch, uh, 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 um, Feynman said that his speech, his his keynote speech, was inspired by Ed Fredkin at Carnegie Mellon. So he was very happy to give credit to all the people that uh, that had inspired him. Um, what was interesting is that they realised that you could use, even if you didn't completely understand sort of philosophically what this quantum behaviour was, you could use it in order to create a class of computers that were extremely powerful in solving particular types of problems. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, so kind of on that point then, to the more practical point, so I don't think we actually have mm. fully functioning quantum computers yet, do we? Um, because they're so hard to make, is that right? And how far off are we now from like a, a proper quantum computer? Well, we're we're making pretty good pretty good progress, but the field is moving really really fast. So, um, uh, you know, if you go back to two thousand and nine, at that stage we were at the uh, you know the first demonstrating the first universal programmable quantum computer uh, with just you know one or two bits. You then go forward to 2017, and IBM at that point had a quantum computer with 50 qubits, so that's starting to get a little bit interesting. You go forwards a couple of more years to 2019, and Google 
were claiming quantum supremacy, which is where they were saying, we have a quantum computer that can do something that a classical computer could never do or could never do in a sensible period of time. Um, and there was some discussion about it. Was that actually uh, was that actually the case? But come forward to 2020, 2021, um, uh, groups in China have a 66 Bit, qubit, 676 qubit quantum computer um, that is apparently doing calculations in one millisecond that would take a classical computer 30 trillion years oh, uh, to gosh. do. Uh, IBM just a few months ago in October, 20, uh, October 2021, so literally a few months ago, announced uh, their next generation of quantum computer called an Eagle, which has 127 qubits. So now you're starting to get into really quite interesting territory. And IBM are saying that they are aiming to have a 1000 qubit computer by 2023. And okay. when you get to the level of a 1000 qubit computer, you're really starting to solve interesting problems. But I think that the whole industry, the quantum computing industry, would accept that the stage that we're at now, someone described it as we're in the NISC stage, the noisy intermediate scale quantum computer stage. So we've got these machines that are very interesting but they're still quite noisy, quite error prone. They're huge physical machines. The engineering isn't great, but they are starting to do interesting things and starting to solve a few interesting problems here and there. But we'll probably be in this position for maybe, I don't know, three, five years. But you won't have to go out that far. You know, whether it's five years or 10 years, you won't have to go out that far till you get to the point where we've got some really serious, quite large large scale uh, quantum computers being being put to work. Wow. Wow, well that's amazing. I didn't realize we were kind of getting that close and I guess we won't be able to order one on Amazon anytime soon, but hopefully in my lifetime, right? Actually, the interesting <laughs> thing is the the approach we've we've sort of gone a little bit back in time in that um the way you know you and I and everyone listening can access a quantum computer today, literally yeah. today, because what um, the likes of Amazon, uh, IBM, Google, Microsoft are doing is making quantum computers available over the cloud. Uh, and uh, you know, IBM talk about um, quantum data centers uh, and having uh, a range of different quantum computers, two qubit, five qubit, 127 qubit, 50 something qubit quantum computers available over the cloud. And I can write my quantum computing algorithm and then send it to them, they process it and send back the answers. So I think that the way that quantum computing will go is that it will be a resource that people can tap into over the cloud rather than uh, having Amazon deliver my quantum computer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually, at the moment, they, you know, physically, they're, they're really quite interesting specimens. So the, the quantum chip, the, the clever bit itself is tiny it's sort of the size of my thumbnail the the, right. the thing that's that's holding the actual quantum bits is really that small like like a, a, a any other chip although there's a, a key difference that i'll explain in a moment but 
in order to hold these quantum bits, these qubits, in this weird superposition state, you have to completely isolate them from their environment. And the way that you do that is trying to get rid of any possible noise by cooling them down to you know, near absolute zero uh, and controlling it and so forth. So you have this huge structure, the size of a big you know, sort of oil drum, in fact, you know, double that size around this tiny little chip. That, uh, and all of that is all about keeping it as cool and stable as possible. Wow. The interesting thing is I heard a computer scientist say something about how quantum computers work differently to classical computers that I thought, ah, that's, that's an insight that I hadn't heard before. What he said was that with a classical computer, on your chip, you embed all these gates, your AND gate, your OR gate, your NOT gate, etc., etc. You have all of these gates that are doing the processing, and then you move your information and apply them to the gates, and your information goes through the gates and comes out with the answer. He said, a quantum computer is almost precisely the opposite. You, your chip is holding the qubits. Your chip is holding the, inform the, the information, and then you apply your gates, your quantum gates, to the information. With quantum computers, you have a set of quantum gates, which some are similar to normal gates and some are specific to the quantum field, you work out what your algorithm is that you're you want to apply. And then you work out what the sequence of gates are that correspond to the algorithm that you want to run. So now you have a sequence of gates that will uh, execute your algorithm. And that sequence of gates is called a circuit, a quantum circuit. So you've got your quantum circuit, and then you apply your quantum circuit to these qubits, then that results in the answer that you're looking for. And because of the probabilistic nature, because you can't be 100% certain that you'll just get one answer, it's like uh, on, a, uh, on a calculator, you do one plus one, press equals, and most of the time it's two, but sometimes it's 173. So you, so you think, right, I'd better do this lots and lots of times to see what, what probably is the right yeah. answer. So what you do with a quantum computer is you run this circuit over and over again, potentially thousands, tens of thousands, millions of times, so that, and you're checking each time what the answer is, and the one that comes out most of the time, you say that is probably the answer, because that's the one that, that keeps coming out. So it's quite a reversal, wow. it takes a bit of sort of... Yeah, mental uh, gymnastics. <laughs> shift in thinking, yeah. It's, it's making me think of an obstacle course, like you have to run them through an obstacle course, yeah. and, and see who wins. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's not a bad, that's not a bad analogy. Which is now making me think of it. it's a knockout. I don't know if you remember that from the 1970s. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, well, yeah. I've had those, yeah. those images uh, connected in my brain forever now. <laughs> <laughs> so what sort of things will quantum computers be good for that, that um, traditional computers aren't? Absolutely. So... The, one of the one of the other steps in uh, in in the sort of history of quantum computing that really ignited the field was when a chap uh, called Peter Shaw, Professor Peter Shaw, in 1994, worked out an algorithm, uh, naturally enough, called Shaw's algorithm, <laughs> <Yep>. that could <laughs> that 
that can that can break most of the encryption that we use on the internet uh, today. So, you know, the basis for most of the encryption that we that we use to keep our information safe uh, is to do with factoring very large prime numbers. Um, somebody says to you, here's a prime number, 35, uh, and you've got to work out what are the two prime factors that add up to the number 35. And you and I can do that easily. We can say, well, that's five and seven, and that's easy enough to do. But it turns out that if the prime number that you're trying to factor is massive, it contains, you know, hundreds of, of digits, yeah. then working out what the factors are is really hard unless you're a quantum computer and you're running Shaw's algorithm, in which case it's really easy, okay. which is uh, which sort of got everyone to think, oh my yeah. goodness, that's, <laughs> that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? <laughs> we rely on uh, encryption being really difficult because it would take thousands of years to crack it. Well, if instead of taking thousands of years to crack it or tens of thousands of years to crack it, it would take us a few seconds or a few minutes to crack yeah, it, oops. well, then that's a, that's a whole big problem. So suddenly, you know, 1994, everyone became really interested uh, in this. And then a couple of years later, uh, a professor called Lov Grover uh, came up with a database search algorithm, 1996, called Grover's algorithm, which, again, allows you to search over massive databases at a phenomenal speed uh, as well. So those sorts of uh, and then there's there's a whole other set of algorithms, uh, quantum algorithms that people have come up with. In fact, there's a site that you can go to if you search quantum algorithm zoo. You'll you'll come across a site that just lists all these amazing algorithms. They're they're incredibly mathematical. So when you look at them, um, if you haven't done maths for a while, you'll Get sort a of think, I, what, what on earth is <laughs> <Yeah>. going? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but you do see all of these algorithms there. The, these algorithms then can be used for a, a, a number of different areas. So obviously, cryptography uh, that I talked about, machine learning, because where machine learning, the aspects of machine learning that involve looking over vast data sets, well, if you've got algorithms that can do that in fractions of a second mm. or in a few seconds, you know, that, that really changes things there. Um, drug design and discovery. So a lot of the interest in quantum computing is in areas that uh, are called, for example, quantum chemistry or computational chemistry. If we want to find out a new drug or a new material, then instead of doing lots of physical experiments to say, what if we try this uh, this with that and does it yeah. work, we can do it on our, our, our computers and we can simulate it, uh, then we could simulate all sorts of different types of materials or drugs in fractions of a second that previously we would have taken years of physical drug discovery to do. So that whole field, and that takes you into areas like you know, agriculture, are there new ways of creating ammonia-based fertilizer that doesn't use all of the effort that we put into it at the moment? Are there ways of removing carbon dioxide from the climate? Are there ways of creating solid-state batteries? Almost every area of material science, if we could use quantum computers, um, it would make a huge difference yeah, because we're able to simulate these molecular interactions in a way that we can't at the moment. Some banks are exploring it. JP Morgan is exploring it in the field of 
financial modeling and portfolio optimization, um, logistics optimizing, weather forecasting. So almost every field, there'll be aspects of it that we could use quantum computers for. And that's why if you look out, we need to get through this noisy intermediate stage. But as we come through this stage, you know, five, 10 years time, almost every field could be touched in quite a fundamental way by having access to this level of computing power. Well, that's so exciting. I'm, I'm now excited about yeah. quantum computing rather than a bit yeah. bamboozled. So that's, that's really good. Thank you so much. It's in, a, it's in our lifetime. That's what I, I sort of enjoy about it as well. You know, it, it will be, yeah. I think, I mean, I'm a quantum computer optimist. There are still some people that are kind of unsure about it. And, and people get very hung up on, is it going to be next year? Is it going to be the year after? But I've been around in computing for 35 years and the odd five or 10 years here on there doesn't doesn't really yeah. matter. What I know is that it's coming. You know, five or 10 years time, it's yeah. coming and there will be a generation of computers that we just think, my goodness, look at what that can wow. do. Wow, that is so exciting. Um, well, th thank you for getting me excited about quantum computing because... <laughs> You know, when, when things are kind of like, it sometimes seem like they're overhyped, you know, and it kind of feels a bit like that with quantum computing, but but maybe it's not overhype, it's mm. a genuine hype, which is uh, great. Thank you. And yeah. so then then thinking about your, your career um, and uh, your own mm. businesses over, you know, over um, time, do you see yourself using quantum computing? Has it already, you know, affected your, your business and what you do? Yeah, it hasn't affected our business today, but obviously my my business is in the um, uh, cybersecurity field. Yeah. And therefore, if you know that down the track, everything we know about encryption at the moment is evolving and changing, you have to keep on top of that. And therefore, that that's really where, from a from a business point of view, we're very, very interested in, in what's happening in this field. Uh, and also, you know the 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 potential impacts in um, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning as well, and as they apply to different areas. Uh, so, what our approach at the moment is to keep a very careful and close watch on what's happening with quantum computing, where it's up to, how quickly it's moving, so that we can work out when's the right time to get actively uh, involved uh, in it. But I also I think it impacts and certainly Feynman himself um, impact the way I think about life the idea that there are there are ways of doing things the classical ways of doing things and then from time to time something comes along that that causes you to look at it in a completely different way or things that you thought were the norm can be radically changed radically uh, sped up uh, and I allow that to uh, to influence the way I approach business and the way I approach life really that and also the idea that very small changes can have a very big impact as well that that's important to me I when I try and make things happen I don't always think right I've got to do something huge because what things like quantum computing and others have taught me is that actually you can make small changes that ripple out and can have a massive and profound impact that's really wonderful and you kind of brought together lots of things throughout 
from my whole career, really, in terms of um, when I started at college, I, I wrote or tried to write some software in basic to um, implement chaos theory, which I kind of feel like, you know, which was very mm. trendy in the 80s. I think that was when I was doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And also my PhD was in the ripple effect. So I feel like, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. you're kind of bringing lots of okay, things home well, to me definitely... that I've been interested in over the years and kind of connecting them in. So uh, that's really wonderful. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, my uh, my claim to fame or possibly infamy in my house <laughs> yeah. is that when <laughs> is that when uh, when we got married in uh, in 1993 and my wife said uh, okay you can organize the honeymoon i arranged for us to go to the santa fe institute <laughs> in, <laughs> in new mexico because i was really into complexity theory and chaos theory at the time and it, it turns out that wasn't the honeymoon she oh, had I'm in Oh, that's really wonderful. And just kind of as a uh, last uh, kind of question. So, you know, we're we're thinking about um, people studying computer science, people that love computer science, and maybe particularly our, our students studying computer science. So what can they maybe take away from the sort of legacy and the work of Richard Feynman? Richard Feynman is my favourite physicist i often ask people who's your favorite physicist and mostly they don't answer yeah. <laughs> they sort of edge away from me but um uh, but richard Feynman is wine uh, and um and for me it's because he was so curious so i think you could take away that just allowing yourself to to be really curious how does that work you know tell me how that works and sort of allowing yourself to go deeper and deeper uh, and so that's one aspect of him the other is that he was also did a lot of different things you know he uh, he played the bongos <laughs> he uh, did safe cracking he did computer science he did theoretical physics he traveled he painted uh, and that idea that you know, you don't have to do one thing. Someone was asking me the other day, they were saying, oh, I've got these choices, you know, should I do this or should I do that? And immediately my mind went to both. You should do both. <laughs> you might do both at the same time. You might do you might do both one after the other. But in this day and age, uh, I would say to young computer scientists and, and people studying, just allow yourself to explore, you know, be in a superposition, explore multiple things <laughs> at the same time, allow them to interfere with each other, allow them to reinforce each other. I would take that from Feynman and from the field of quantum computing. That is an absolutely wonderful place to, uh, to finish our interview with you today Tom it's been such an absolute um, kind of mind bending mind altering in a way uh, pleasure to to chat to you uh, today thank you very very much Tom thank you very much wonderful to hear from Tom there helping us explore the birth of quantum computing Welcome back, Quentin. Welcome back, Cal. Hello. Hi. Uh, yeah, that was so interesting. It was incredible. Absolutely incredible. So, Quentin, after listening to Tom, where do you think we'd be if Richard Feynman hadn't given his keynote? Do you think we would have found a way to develop quantum computing another way? Well, I think Feynman was an incredible physicist. There is no doubt in my mind about that. You know, from my A-level physics, just how much I heard his name, he was absolutely mad at what he did so I think he definitely catalyzed it and I think we definitely got it a lot sooner because of him but I, I I'd be inclined to say we probably would have got it eventually maybe in a different way um but probably a lot later than we did 
Right, thank you. And so turning to the future, Cal, where do you think quantum computing is going to take us in years to come? So there are so many different industries that quantum computing is going to be vital to. As you mentioned at the start, Quentin, it's going to be very uh, vital to quantum cryptography because of its um, ability to you know, crack prime numbers, which is all about how our current encryption systems work. But one thing that um, Tom mentioned that I was very particularly drawn to was its uses in the medical industry because of a the fact that quantum computers operate on the same laws of physics as like the molecules in real life do, um, they are very good at producing models of molecules and their interactions, which means things like drug trials and drug development can just move on that much faster because we have so much more accurate predictions and things that we never thought we might be able to treat. So there is a company called Roche that are using quantum computing to develop drugs that could potentially treat chronic conditions such as Alzheimer's. Um, maybe even Parkinson's disease, maybe in cancer as well. All these conditions that we never thought we'd be able to overcome that have had such a profound impact on so many different people's lives. And now we're at a stage where we might actually be able to cure them. Because when we think about the development of computing, we think, you know, faster computers, better performance, smaller, smaller phones, smaller laptops. We don't think about these life-changing possibilities. So I think it's absolutely incredible that con quantum computers can do something like that. And I, and I very much look forward to seeing it being implemented in the real world. Yes, absolutely. I was I was amazed by that. And uh, the fact that it can be used to, to help eradicate diseases like sickle cell anemia. I mean, just absolutely incredible. Um, and something that I hadn't thought about at all before. So uh, fascinating. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. How about you two? Yeah, I think I might just drop out of my computer science degree and make a career out of podcasting. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> just finish the degree as a backup then, shall we? Oh, we'll try, we'll try. <laughs> You've got great careers uh, ahead of you in computer science and in podcasting, I would say. Don't leave. <laughs> Never going to, don't worry. <laughs> So, have you got any moments that you want us to explore? If there's a computer science moment that rocked your world, tweet us at 100momentscs and we might discuss it in the next series. Huge thanks to our guest, Tom Lubick. And thanks so much for listening. Tune in next episode for another moment that rocked computer science. Computer science. One Hundred Moments That Rocked Computer Science was a Why Did the Chicken production for Durham University. It was presented by Professor Sue Black, OBE, and featured the voice of Anne-Marie Imaphidon. Our student brains were Quentin O'Brien and Cal Sahili. The producer was Redzi Bernard, and the executive producer, Dan Page. If you enjoyed the show, please do three nice things for us. Subscribe, leave a rating or review, and tell a friend. 